If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> America's first. Blubbity Blah. The Blubbity Blah. Sending out good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Blubbity Blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection. And put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track. Shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grammatic Show. Coming at you this week with uh, Jimmy Fritz. I think it's Jimmy Fritz. He's a real character. We got everybody's favorite podcaster here, too. Graham Traveling Man Dunlop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm on the coast. On the coast back in a different coast. spot. Yeah. So he moved to Saskatchewan and then he spent more time on the coast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just here for a few. I'm here for a few weeks just to help out with a with a job, kind of help my sister and and her boyfriend out with their uh, their specialty deli on the on the Sunshine Coast and and their location there, and hopefully eventually I can expand it to Saskatchewan, you know, you know and, Al- and Alberta. So Alberta, yeah. there you go. Yeah, Alberta, I got to do it, man. I can't. I mean, I, I can't. Got to make Alberta. ends meet. I need like fucking four jobs these days to make ends meet. It's insane. Why don't you? Why don't you do? Oh, stop. Alberta what? first. Alberta first. Does that well, I, yeah, but in order to do that, I have to do this stuff on the coast. Here. We have to get Plus, some I'm an author. Six jobs. Yeah, I know. But Alberta, this is like, is there a market? How many, How big is... Uh, yeah, I guess Saskatchewan is... Uh, yeah. No, it's, t- it's tight. It'd be it's good not, guess, too. There's not a ton of a market, but there is one. I mean, but it's, I think you got to be pretty tight if you're going to start selling new product in Saskatchewan, right? I mean, it's really. Yeah. Let's start small. Have you, you, if you could get into some grocery stores, so like, remember, yeah. you know how all the Calgary grocery stores sell Spilumbos? Yeah. Like, if you could be that dude, yeah. man, yeah. then you're laughing. And it's just well, like he's in IG, dude. He's yeah. in he's in Whole Foods already. IGA. He's in yeah, Whole Foods yeah. and IGA and all that here already, so. You know what IGA stands for? What? Indians go away. Oh my god! What? <laughs> that used to be the joke of my hometown. Oh wow! Because there was an IGA there. I think it's actually like International Grocers Association. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, dude, it's it's looking you know it's looking good. It's it's kind of fun to try something else and you know try and make a go of this too. It's gonna be interesting. How's the diet going? Oh, it's good. I'm down like seven, eight pounds now. Like I just haven't had working. any sugar. What? And you're working and moving. And hustling. Yeah. Oh yeah. For some reason, my face is all red, but I just had Japanese barbecue sauce. So I don't know if that's got something to do with it. You got so, shedded on. Yeah. I'm still on. What? Shedded Julian Barr. <laughs> yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going good. I'm down a whole bunch of pounds, like almost a pound a day for a while there. So. A pound a day? Yeah. You do a pound a day and piss. If you could, uh, I don't know how that would work. But so, sometimes that's where I take a pee that's a couple pounds. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pee and piss and poo at the same time. Well, I'm sure a lot of it's just retaining water at first, right? That's what they say. You get rid of that water you're retaining and then... But I mean, obviously, the the, the pace of weight loss will slow down pretty pretty soon, probably, but... How many do you have to lose? Honestly? Yeah. 50 pounds? Well, this way, you only have like 45 days to go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't be done in a few months. Yeah, well, you look good 50 pounds lighter. Yeah. You kind of grow all over, so it's hard to notice. You didn't I know, I, I know. I do hold my good. weight pretty good, but my belly, no, but my belly's gotten way out of control. Yeah. It's, it's, Your belly's it's terrible. probably like, my upper torso. I hit my bottom, so it's just, I hit my bottom in this regard. I gotta, I gotta just de- deal with it, take care of it. What'd you get to, like, 250? No, I can't, I'm not gonna say. No. I don't have to disclose that. No. Don't forget, <laughs> I'm pretty short. I'm, I'm vertically challenged as well. So, two thirty-two. <laughs> I'm not telling you. <laughs> if I guess, you can reverse engineer the numbers if you really want to know where I want to be at. Like, you know, where do you want to be at? I don't know. One seventy, one eighty would be nice. One seventy-five, one eighty would be nice. That's that would still be a lot that. for a vertically challenged person, too. I mean, what was your upper? What would be your upper limit? Like two forty. Well, I hit my upper limit. That's why I'm just like, whoa. (laughs) And it was perfect timing. New Year's Day. I'm like, okay, doing this. I can stand to gain a few pounds. I'm going to make it stick this time. I don't think I actually need to gain weight, though. I could eat more. Yeah, you're you're fine. Yeah, I think I'm probably fine. Yeah, I drink too much coffee if I had to pick something. I'd probably drink too much coffee and smoke too much weed. (laughs) But I'm in good shape. Yeah. I'm in good shape and uh, I don't eat well actually that's not true I've eaten more junk I've been finding myself uh, a little more burgers here and there you know burgers on yeah. the farm yeah. it's cold you know that's really what it is as it starts to get cold you need you just can't go because usually I could just like go on coffee to like after work have a snack and then have dinner because you, I do like a lot of heavy cream in my coffee, so you get some fat in there, maybe a dab of honey, a little sugar. That's enough to get you through the day. That's how I stay lean and mean. And uh, but when it's cold, it's just not enough. Why don't you just when you get back to Saskatchewan, just go stand outside? Remember we said you just. Well, I've been working outside. I've been I've been walking outside in my shorts as much as possible. Like I'm, I'm trying to expose you're myself guy. to cold. You're what? That you're that guy in your shorts. Well, I. Trying to right. just what short shorts? No, they're no, they cover half the thigh. I mean, you know. half the thigh. If it's not like brushing the top of the kneecap, it's a short short. So you're walking around your new town in short shorts, yeah, in the winter, yeah. It hasn't been cold, look like the geek. No, it hasn't been that cold. I mean, I'm not gonna push it. It's just, I'm just trying to get exposure to the cold. That's well, the cold is will make you lose weight. Yeah, and I think it's just, just good to roll explore. around in the snow for like 10 minutes. That's the same as working out hard for like, I don't know. I'm just making shit up, honestly, at this point. Um, it's cold, so, cold as fuck here. As for an update and getting cold as fucker. So when you get home, it'll probably be minus 40. Yeah, I know. That's, uh, I'm glad I, I picked a good time for that, really. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost snowing here, though, but raining really hard, but almost snowing and super dark. Very it's supposed dark to be here. minus 39 here on Friday night. Wow. 
Not dark though. The sun's coming back. It was bright out till like uh oh man, well after five o'clock today. Almost five thirty. Dude, I've been chasing pheasants around. There's two pheasants I've been roosting in the barn. But I've just been busy. I'm still too busy to get out after the normal. Now it's getting cold. I'll probably get after it a little bit more. I don't want winter to get them. I'd rather get them than winter. A couple days, though, like kind of a couple days of cold. Yeah, I guess. Huh. Did you see that Instagram video I sent about the pheasant trap? Or was that quail? I did was see that. Probably I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make some of those. Yeah, totally. Yeah, looks- I'm gonna fucking make a bunch of those. You catch all sorts of shit. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. It's just weird because now you're catching it, it's alive. So I just what I'll do is I'll just catch it and then shoot whatever flies away. Yeah. Because uh otherwise what well, you can just like club it or choke it out. Yeah, I guess. Mm. It's a little more personal than I like my hunting to be, you know. Like <laughs> I don't need to kill shit with this yeah, I'm not one of these guys that needs to kill some shit with a spear or bat or knife with my bare hands. This is kind of fucked up. Did, so, did, did you see the video of me blowing up the Christmas tree? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Took that was a lot. The end of a lot of experimentation. I mean, I don't know if you want to be putting that stuff on video, really. But I mean, why I guess not? It's fine. Well, because. Because if they like, I, I don't know if they like it. people blowing shit up in their yard. I mean, you know, they're gonna start calling your place a compound before you know it. Honestly, that was a compound as soon as I moved in. I have enough guns to make any place a compound. <laughs> Arsenal. You know, it is what it is. Dude, I hear shit blowing up all the time around here. I live in God's country. Like, That's nice. <laughs> you just know when they're shooting tannerite and shit because you got you don't even really hear you just feel the like you hear the gunshot because I bought like 40 pounds of tannerite on the Boxing Day sale. It was 50% off. So, and you don't need a lot of tannerite. So it took a lot. We did, you know, three pounds of tannerite, four pounds of tannerite, put a ballot bottle of gas on top of it. I thought that was only one pound that you took the video off. Well, that's what we got down to at the end. We didn't video most of it because we didn't, we were just learning. Oh, I see. We were shooting giant amounts of tannerite with gas on top of it and we couldn't get anything other than like big like puffs of smoke so then what we did is we were like okay so then we got a bigger container i had some empty jugs from when uh because i threw my pool out wasn't deep enough for the kids anymore and it had a tear in it so i tossed it but i still had all the chemicals so i dumped out all the chemicals and i had those jugs and those jugs were like you know, a taller enough than a half liter uh, bottle of cola, you know, like a 500 mil, that you could fill that with gas and put it inside and then have like room tannerite around, around it. So you'd get about two pounds of tannerite around the outside of the gas. And then you put the lid on that. And then when you shoot that, it fucking explodes properly. Like, you know, it's not crazy. It's not like, it's not a, my kids were loving it. You know what I mean? It's my not kids. Hollywood explosions, but it's but that's what it is. Explosive. It's like Hollywood explosions. Oh, okay. But if you packed a bunch in there, I mean, this thing, this would certainly scale up to, uh, you know, you know, say you did a barrel with a, with mostly gas. I think it's like if you've if you could figure out a way to do it, I think you wouldn't need a lot. You only need like a half pound of the tannerite, really. I think to start it. 
Is it the flame that's starting the tent right then, or is it the... Well, there's not supposed to be any flame in there. That's the thing. Because the bullet's just fucking hitting the tannerite going really fast and it's causing some sort of reaction. The, the, that's like them not, lighting non, the gas. Like yeah. non-fire reaction. Yeah. I but thought. it's sparking the gas, but it's but not the spark. But if you add pressurization in there, then it's exploding the gas. Hmm. And it was enough to blow the Christmas tree into multiple pieces. Wow. That was fucking gnarly, dude. We put a, we did another one where we set it on like a big log, dude, like a log, like fucking foot and a half across. We were using it as a table, like a log that you could chop wood on all day. It'd be your chopping block. And we set our shit on there and it fucking blew it to like fucking eight pieces. Wow. Yeah. You could definitely set up some traps or some, you know, if you were. If you needed to, if you were of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of chemical reactions, I mean, I do have an update on the Malcolm Bendel stuff. Wow. Randall sent out his newsletter recently. Well, yeah, but this isn't from his newsletter. This is from uh, uh, a study that's been going around in the groups that are talking about this. And it's uh, from scientific reports. It's from nature.com actually. And it's, have you seen this? Water can trigger nuclear reaction to produce energy and isotopic gases. Isotope gases. No. You haven't heard of that? I have not. Is it a secret that I talked to, I was talking to Randy today and George yesterday though? Yeah, probably. Unrelated things. Huh. Can you talk, do you want to talk about it now or should I go through this report? Talk about what? What I was talking to them about? Yeah. I don't really want to talk about that on the show. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. We're just trying to book different things and get a hold yeah. of different people. I mean, we do have a couple of trips with Randall coming up. We can talk about We do. Scablands is flying off the shelf. So if you want yeah. to come and hang out with Randall Carlson and have a time in the Washington Scablands, you know, the place on Joe Rogan, everyone's favorite fucking place. It's awesome. It's a, it's a flagship tour with Randall for sure. You know, it's the one where you can really see it because it's in that high desert. The landscape hasn't really changed. It's the same as it was, you know, 10,000 years ago. So you come check that out. Head over to contact at the cabin.com. While you're there, you can get Eclipse tickets. Guys, we got the fucking Eclipse event of the century coming up. Full Eclipse. Texas. Full total Eclipse of the fart, as named by Graham Dunlop. Eclipse the Canyon. It will be. We're like a couple, uh, you know. Right there, almost dead center of the path of totality. So we're going to get two full minutes of darkness. I think that's what they said, right? That's About what three. I, I thought it was three, but three. Holy shit. That's more than I got last time. Last time I only got like, I want to say about 40 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it is only maybe two. a minute. But anyway, I mean, I've heard you get up to seven minutes. Oh, wow. That's well, but I thought I if you're, you're is, so it's that minute. different in the path of totality. There's that much of a variation. Depending on how close you are to center. Wow. Remember really, all, those, eh? all those poor fuckers went to Seaside, Oregon, and they, they didn't even get total. <laughs> there's like a huge difference between 98% and total. Oh, that's so funny. Wow. That's interesting. Did you see my recommendation that we should uh, invite Adam Curry down officially? Yeah, we should. Be yeah. a producership. Yeah. Not us, but, uh, you know, policy. Yeah. for that and uh that'd be cool that'd be cool that'd be some more but anyway 
regardless of that, we got the Snake Bros. We got uh, Jimmy Caverns, Luke Caverns. Luke, Luke Caverns and Ben from Uncharted X. Ben from Uncharted X. Dave Matheson. And those are just the, like hired speakers. You know, I'm telling you right now, there's going to be some other people that are just super cool that are showing up because I already know some people that are super cool that are showing up that are, you're going to have little private things going off off on the sides. You know what I mean? Maybe perhaps because I know my buddy Brandon Powell's come planning on coming. So, you know, he's not an official guest, but I'm sure if you track him down in the morning, you can get some info from him. I mean, that's what's so great about these events is it's not, there's a speaker on the stage and that's it. You're going to be hanging out, rubbing shoulders for days and uh, having a time. Yeah. Yeah. First festival. First festival. So help us out on this one. I think we, we still got to sell like 45 tickets to break even on this bitch. So don't wait. Buy a ticket. Help us out on this one. Because if we can't do one festival, we can't do two festivals. Yeah, exactly. You know, we'll have to shrink this back up to just the events, just the tours. So check that out, guys. Contact at thecabin.com. I don't know what I got to do to get that down onto the web page, but it is still in the menu. Um, oh, I'll take care of that. Yeah. If you, yeah. I forgot to email the guy. Yeah. Oh, did you? So, so yeah. you can blame Russia, maybe. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's Russia and Ukraine's fault on that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's in the it's in the bars up top, top there. It is in the bars. Eclipse at the canyon. Eclipse at the canyon. Check it out. Have a time with us down the eclipse. Get yourself on a Randall tour. Come to Canada and hang out with us in the winter, which is a ball and ass trip, I gotta say. Or uh, we got the other one down in Duck Creek, Utah. Up in Duck Creek, Utah, I guess. Technically, 28 feet of snow last year. We're going in the summer this year. All that and more, contact at thecabin.com. You want to finish your Bendall report? Yeah, back to this... Uh... Back to this abstract. So it says this this paper reports the discovery that water can trigger a peculiar nuclear reaction and produce energy. So this is separate to Bendel's work, but it sort of helps helps um, just uh, rational not rationalize it, justify it, but uh, you know it sort of supports it scientifically. Cavitation may induce unusual reactions through implosion of water vapor buzzle, bubbles. So they've been talking about this for a long time, but this is like an interesting study that just came out. Many of this research has, has been published formally or informally. We have conducted experiments using two reactor types made from multiple pipe heat exchangers and found that the heat exchange process of water produces peculiar excess heat and abnormally high pressure leading to the rupture of the reactor. So recently they've tested these eight reactor reactors and interesting, these produce non-condensable gas. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but... Um, I'm going to get back to the, I'm just going to get down to the conclusion. It's quite a long, long paper. And in the conclusion, it says, um, that's the acknowledgements. Uh, conclusion. So cavitation may induce implosion of water vapor bubbles using various techniques. Then there's 10 of the techniques cited there. In the previous study, we found that the heat exchange process in multiple peep, pipe heat exchangers produces anomalous excess heat and nuclear transmutation. Recently, we've tested another eight reactors and found they also produce non-condensable gas. We suspect that 22NE and CO2 may exist and is from nuclear reactions of water. So we also find that the reactions... So yeah, I'm not going get, to uh, get too far into that. 
And then Johanna James, I've got a link to both of these in the show notes, and she came out with a new video that's sort of summarizing all this as well, because they did those those big analysis that um, SE, a scanning electron microscope, the SEM analysis of the inside of one of Bendel's thunderstorm generators. And if people haven't heard about this, this is the big controversy that Randall and JRE had with um, <clears throat> Malcolm Bendall and and um, with the clean energy, like trying to, you know, he says he claims it it increases efficiency on combustion engines and and transmutes the exhaust into oxygen. And this analysis of the thunderstorm generator, it says it's there's proof of reactions inside the thunderstorm generator. So this what they've analyzed cannot be caused by just water bubbles, you know, like water creating bubbles and stuff like that. It's actually um, shows that chemical transmutation has happened inside this thunderstorm generator with ball lightning. So that's happening in the generator. So it's moving. This is moving fast, man. This technology seems to be working. More people are studying it. Seems to be, and it's coming out on all sides. And then we have Ben, 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 Ben from Uncharted X coming on our show, and he's going to be talking about these vases, which I think this is kind of all connected to. Vases? These vases? Vases? Van Kirkwick. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, he's really becoming one of the top Egypt guys, right? It's cool to see. Yeah. It's really cool to see him and the bros. I mean, specifically, you're going back to Egypt, I think. uh, Twice, I think. February, March. Like a month. Yeah, right away. Coming up here. If I can imagine all that fucking flying, it's finally cold here, dude. I'm fine, you know, it's ready to go nuts. It's supposed to get hard on everything. It's just, it's not meant to be warm. And not that I'm saying it's global warming or this or that, I, I think it's cyclical. But uh, it's nice to have some cold weather. It feels a little just more normal, you know? Yeah. We just need like three feet of snow now. You yeah. know what else we need is some support. I mean, it's cold there too. It's cold on the support front, the Great America support front. You know, it's like people think this is a free podcast, maybe, or maybe no one's listening. I don't know. If you are listening and you are getting some value from our podcast here, it's not free. You know, we put a lot of effort into this show, interviewing, scheduling, and all of it. And, uh, uh, you know, never mind you, about editing and the, the process too. The process and the hate. And also the love, though. The love makes it all worthwhile. We love you guys. We love you more if you're the few, one of the few who choose to support us. Over oh. our what? No, before we finish, I just want to say something. So go, keep going. If you choose to support us over at grammerica.ca slash support today, uh, you can make a one-time donation or you can sign up for a monthly, as little as a buck a month. You can do a one-time donation for two bucks. Whatever floats your boat. It all helps. If everybody was listening gave one dollar a month, we would we could stop asking. It's you know, but they don't. So it's about one percent, maybe two on a good month. But if you can head over to grimerica.ca slash support today, we would be eternally grateful and love you for it. You can also head over to grimericaoutlaw.ca and check out that content and there's a way to support over there. Or you can head over to uh, adultbrain.ca and there's different ways to support there. Come to a trip or that's all the ways you can support financially. They all help. You know, you don't have to do all of them. Just do one. If everyone did one, we'd be laughing. Uh, and if you can't afford it, we get it. It's tough out there. Spam, gram, share the show. We're shadow banned. We're blocked. We're 
demonetized demonetized officially um so if you just share it we got yeah officially demonetized on youtube now everyone's like you were still monetized it's like well not really we couldn't (laughs) ads and videos but we could get super chats so we we got like a hundred dollars a month in super chats if we were lucky and uh, now we can't do that so america.ca slash support hey maybe you're one of the super chatters and uh, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. So maybe you can head over, sign up for a monthly and support us that way because that option's gone. We'll mention that on the next live stream too. Anyway, we do need support. We really do. It's like uh, everyone's stretched thin and podcasts are the first thing to go. And we're feeling it over here for sure. And uh, but I mean, big thanks to you guys because we'd be fucked without the ones who are supporting. Oh, yeah, we totally, totally appreciate it. We totally appreciate it. We are full of gratitude and love here. For sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got us through the whole audiobook fiasco. That's sort of, you know, that's starting to get back up on its feet again. We would be lost without the people we had right now. It could have all fallen apart. Yeah. There <laughs> over the last six to eight months. It really could have leap came, of faith would have been a leap into it. Falling apart. Yeah. But uh, we did. And we're coming back up. And you can be part of that. Come up and America.ca slash support. So I, right, might do a, I, might, well, I might do a segment next week. Uh, referencing back to this episode because I don't want to ruin the episode. I don't want to ruin the surprise in the episode. But it'll be talking about, I might do a a, a segment next week uh, addressing the skepticism part of this episode. So, episode is this? Yeah, I don't. This is the Jimmy oh, Fritz one. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I don't, yeah. There's a few things out of problem. He's a nice old guy. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, no, no. But, but I mean, I feel like I need job. to. What? Yeah, I get you. He did a pretty good job of like getting me like halfway around on the maid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that no, that's uh, I appreciate all that for sure. No, but there's some stuff I need to address in the next episode, so I will do that. I just don't want to become an eternal servant to the dead. Yeah, yeah. It's a big risk. I can't yeah, ride. Is, I'd rather ride it out than risk it. Yeah. So anyway. this is uh, this is Jimmy Fritz. He's a he's a British Canadian writer, musician, filmmaker, and bon vivant, bon vivant, bon vivant. Uh, he's written two feature-length screenplays, numerous articles, and three books. His first book, Rave Culture, an insider's overview chronicled the global rave phenomena. We'll talk about that a little bit. In 2020, he published Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, a psychedelic travelogue and memoir, and a witty and enlightening treatise on the responsible use of psychedelics, told through the lens of a 50-year journey buying, selling, and consuming psychedelics. Most recently, he completed a new novel entitled, and this is his only novel because he's not going to write anymore, he says, The End of Everything. And it's about a character named Fritz who is plotting his own suicide in a mental asylum. It's an ironic black comedy. As a singer-songwriter, he's produced five albums and 24 music videos of his original songs. And as a filmmaker, he has produced and directed numerous shorts and documentaries. I can tell you, the book's pretty funny and it's well-written. So people want to... You know, catch like a a novel, uh, a novel, a funny novel about an insane asylum. Pretty cool. There you have it, guys. Enjoy the chat with the one and only Jimmy Fritz.
Jimmy Fritz. Welcome to Gray America. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Uh, greetings from British Columbia. Oh, you're in. Yeah, I thought you were sort of part Canadian. I was wondering where you were from. Yeah, where beautiful where, where... British Columbia. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I was born in England and uh, grew up and went to school there, and then I started traveling a lot and uh, ended up in uh, in BC, in uh, Canada. We're both in BC. In Victoria. Okay, nice. Nice. Yeah. Island island life. That's right. You know Vancouver Island. Yeah, a little bit. I've I used to live on on there for when I was a kid for a bit, and I I grew up in Vancouver, and then oh okay, I moved to, uh, I moved cool. to Al- Alberta and now to Saskatchewan. So okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was I. You know what's funny is I I thought you were on a friend of mine our our ours uh, their podcast, and um, I always thought, geez, that would be interesting to talk to this guy because I, I saw the title. It was um, it was your. Confessions. Let me just find that. Confessions, Confessions of, of an ethical drug dealer. Yeah, of an ethical drug dealer. I thought, oh boy, that sounds, that sounds pretty They're interesting. Find bookstores everywhere. It's a fifty-year. Um, it's a journey, both geographical and philosophical, while sharing a half-century of ventures in buying, selling, and consuming psychedelic drugs. Along <laughs> the day, along the way, we learned the difference between smart drugs and dumb drugs. Right. right. The truth about religion and how to make a perfect cup of tea. Nice. And then I also noticed your rave culture. I mean, we had a, but I couldn't find that episode. I mean, I, I saw it pop up and I couldn't find it. So I don't even know which, which one it was, but either way, I wanted to talk to you. And then I'm glad that uh, yeah. I'm glad that we finally connected. And I mean, the rave culture too, I was having a discussion with some friends and they were talking about how, <laughs> yeah, I don't, and I don't know if it was you, but they were talking about a researcher that did this sort of dive into like, I guess it would be Ibiza, Ibiza or however you pronounce that. And, and the beginning of that whole culture, I guess it would be in the late eighties or early nineties. Yeah. 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 That's all outlined in the book, the history of the culture and the history of the music. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a primer for the global rave phenomenon. Right. It's written quite in the year 2000. So it's kind of, uh, it's a bit dated. Right. It's kind right. of a historical document now. Well, have you ever thought about, I mean, because haven't the whole, haven't, hasn't the whole festival culture like come from that as well? Well, it was a kind of a, rave, rave culture was a continuation of, it started with a merge between the, you know, the house music uh, scene and, um, and the free party scene in England. Because yeah. there was a, there was a tradition in England at the time where people would set up sound systems in a farmer's field and do these impromptu parties, which would go too late. But this was before house music. So they weren't really raves. They were more like, uh, you know, underground. They're called free parties. It was a free party, uh, free party movement. So they, that was going on. And then house music came along and uh, really took off in Ibiza. And that kind of married with the MDMA. And then it went north and came back into England and became the Summer of Love in 87, which was the, you know, the birth of the rave, rave culture. 87. Okay. That's what I thought. So, so the MDMA came after the free parties and all that and kind of married. That's what it sort of coalesced in Ibiza then, right? Yeah. It was more or less those three things because Shulgin had resynthesized uh, ecstasy and it got out onto the uh, Dallas dance scene and the Dallas club scene. So that was happening, and then the free party scene, and then the house music uh, scene from Ibiza came up, and the three kind of melded together into the ra- into rave culture. And then, do you think that now is now festival culture? Like, it's turned into. I mean, if you look at the states, I mean, there's festivals all over the place. I mean, this has really exploded from then. 
yeah i mean it's a similar kind of a thing it's not quite the same thing because it's not that it's more it's not that group group experience you know there's a group mind experience that happens with rave culture which is kind of unique and it's unique you know to the music and and the drug too so it's you know festivals can can be a lot of different things they can be folk festivals or rock festivals or you know bluegrass festivals or well, I, I guess I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of the edm the edm festivals you know yeah there are quite a few yeah and those are kind of those are those are remnants of the rave scene they're sort of you know presenting presenting rave culture in a more commercial format whereas the original rave culture was about the underground hit and miss parties and running around in the middle of the night with a flyer you know so when you commercialize that it becomes something different i think a, a better analogy a contemporary analogy would be uh, burning man you know burning man is, is is a huge festival which is uh, co-created by the participants everything's free that it's not performances per se everybody brings whatever they bring so they bring performances and workshops and clubs and pubs and dances and and raves and everything and uh it all comes together in this massive festival in the nevada desert and uh black rock desert and they call it black rock city so that's that's burning man that's really the uh the the contemporary evolution of rave culture i think yeah that's a good point so let's talk a little bit about the confession of the ethical drug dealing that i mean the, you kind of described it in a good summary there like you figured out through the your travels and everything sort of the good drugs and the bad drugs and and tell us a little bit about about that book well that was just my it's a memoir i call it a psychedelic travelogue and memoir so it's basically my it, it's basically a 50-year journey it's 50 years of traveling geographically and psychologically because i've done a lot of traveling around europe and central america and asia and you know north america so I was kind of on the road for about 10 years. And then, uh, you know, I've done a lot of traveling since then. Lived in a lot of different countries. Had all these experiences, but also parallel with that was my life of psychedelics, which I started when I was 15. And so in one way, it was just a way of, uh, you know, telling my story of, of my life. And also to, you know, to put a message out there that you can have a long and full and rewarding uh, life while using psychedelics. like. You know, there's, there's smart drugs and dumb drugs, right? So there's a there's a there's a kind of prevailing uh, idea out there that drugs are bad and drugs are going to you know mess you up sooner or later, and that's not necessarily true. It hasn't been true for me. I've never had any negative effect from any drug, and I've tried pretty much everything. Uh, never had any downside. Never had any addiction problems. Never had any issues. Never done psychedelics therapeutically because never needed therapy. <laughs> so, you know, these are, these are things that for me, I mean, for me are commonplace. That's my, my everyday life. And also from most of the people that I've ever known. Yeah, exactly. It's also true. And yet the only information you ever get about psychedelics is that they're either going to drive you crazy or, you know, they're only good for therapy or you're going to get addicted to something, you know, and all these things have, they've never been true for me. So I wanted to present a life of basically illicit drug use, which has been incredibly positive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's changed quite a bit. I mean, now we're looking at, you know, especially where you, where you live in Victoria and Vancouver. I mean, I think you can buy most of these drugs kind of legally. Well, only marijuana. Not, uh, you can't get hard drugs there now or? 
Well, they have it. They just passed a new law, actually, just a few months ago. Whereas if you're caught with with small amounts, like just I think it's three, three and a half grams, three and a half grams of anything uh, will not give you a criminal conviction, but will potentially put you into some kind of a program. So the problem is, is all these people on the streets and they're usually they're talking about crack and cocaine and, and meth. These are drugs that are a huge problem and uh, people on the streets are doing them. So rather than rather than bust them and put them in jail and give them fines or whatever, I mean, none of that's going to change anything for them. So now they're referring them to rehab programs and, uh, and not giving them a criminal record. And it frees up the police, too, because they waste a lot of time running around trying to, you know, grab, you know, wrestle crack pipes from homeless people. And it's uh, not a very good look for them and it does no good for anybody else. So they're finally smartening up. But marijuana is completely illegal in Canada, uh, completely legal, sorry. Yeah. Nationally, only the only second, the only you know, second country in the world next to Uruguay. So that's pretty progressive. Well, there's mushroom stores there in Vancouver now, too. And they're just getting busted right now. <laughs> One at a time. Yeah, they're busting them all. <laughs> they busted five of them in uh, in Montreal a couple of months ago. And uh, they just busted a couple in uh, Vancouver. Wow. It's illegal to sell mushrooms. They're a controlled substance and there's no uh, medical use and there's no um, no gray area. Do you see that? Is it sort of working towards that? Well, it's going to go the same way. I mean, that's what happened with marijuana, right? People just started selling it and saying, oh, it's medicine. You know, we're a compassion club. Wink, wink, you know, let, come and get your pop. <laughs> so they did that for a while, and it did create some confusion because people thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe people do need this, and maybe, you know, people's lives are better for it. And so they started looking at it, and eventually – that did lead to the legalization of marijuana. And I suspect the same will happen with things like mushrooms. Yeah. They'll create, um, I mean, there is a bunch of research going on right now about mushrooms with for depression. And uh, there was a, there was a study done in Victoria just last year, the year before with uh, psilocybin uh, in end of life issues, you know, make, but it was a small study, you know, it was only like 20 people, I think. So it's early days for the research, but once the research gets going and once they find, real real medical uses for psilocybin it will probably uh you know probably eventually become medical mushrooms like it did medical marijuana and then it will be recreation after that and then it'll be medical mdma and uh, that's right what, what else what what's next lsd dmt i'd like to circle back before we get in because all those drugs are kind of you know wonderful and and non-habit forming and and great you know i don't have anything bad to say about any of those things it's probably just a matter of time before you can get some like dmt as you're crawling into their maid chamber but what about you talked before about the crack and uh the methamphetamine and stuff like that and over on the e over on the west coast you guys got that that pretty bad so where does that fit in and what's the solution for that sort of thing because I mean, I don't know that arresting people is the best way to do it, but in Calgary, I don't know if you do it there, but in Calgary, we've, what we started doing is we just do like, okay, well, you can come here and do your drugs and we'll give you mm -hmm. clean this and clean that. But then yeah. those neighborhoods are just sort of crawling with problems now. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that's the, the right solution. I mean, 
there's parts of areas of Lethbridge that I won't even go into after dark anymore. And I used to just sort of not worry about that too much. So where do those drugs sort of fit into this? Because I, I'm very much on the same page with you with all the drugs that you just sort of mentioned, you know, I'm smoking weed as well. We're podcasting. I do shrooms once or twice a year. You know, there's, there may or may not be some DMT in one of the drawers behind me, but, um, you know, those other ones are really ruining lives. And, and how do those fit in, in, in your, your view of things and what can we do about them? Well, I think the first thing to note is that the, it's not the drugs that are ruining lives, that the lives are ruined, usually through poverty and usually through abuse and usually through childhood trauma and psychological issues and mental illness. This, that's the problem. The only, the only good thing in these, if you're living on the street, the only good thing in your life is a flap of crack or a shot of heroin because it's the only thing that gets you out of your horrible life and your horrible situation very temporarily. So it's not really a drug problem. It's a mental health problem, I think. So that's got, you've got to address it at that level. But it's a huge problem here. We've got people, the streetfuls of people you know, living on the street uh, doing crack and meth openly. And they're all hopelessly addictive. So, you know, there was a huge, um, uh, where I come from in England, in Crawley, Sussex, <clears throat> there was a huge heroin problem. All the young people were doing heroin. And I knew, I knew probably a dozen heroin addicts when I was 15 or 16. And um, it, was, it was getting to be a big problem. What the government did is they legalized heroin. And... Um, they assess the people for their for their whatever they needed, and uh, you know I have lots of friends who would go along to the pharmacy every every uh, week and get a little bottle of pharmaceutical uh, heroin and a box of syringes, and they'd go back to their little bed set and they'd sit on the mattress and they'd read science fiction novels, and uh, they were no bother to anybody. You know they literally so there was the crime went away, the 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 car crime, the house you know burglaries and all these stealing and all these issues uh they all just disappeared almost overnight it was a fantastic success and anywhere they've tried that it's worked so that would be the first thing is to just um assess people for their addictions give them a prescription because one of the problems about addicts on the street they spend every single waking moment looking for a fix their whole life is consumed by finding the next hit and the next you know next flap of crack and um, so they've got no chance of getting out of their life like that. Once you take that away, they're just sitting around with nothing to do. You have to give them a place to live, too, of course. But once you do that, and that's, you know, give them a room and a TV and uh, and a prescription. So, you can that, keep them, but can you keep them in there? I mean, because right now I think part of the problem is they don't want to, they don't want to go against the, you know, the, the addicts rights and force them to use in certain spots. They want to let them be free and roam all over the streets. I mean, there's got to be some sort of tough love and like, here's your stuff, but you can't be using it on the, you know, and in, in, right. in somebody's doorway. So you use, you use the court system. You, you pick them up on possession you take him to a court. The court says, okay, this, this guy is addicted to crack. He's been living on the street for two years. And the court orders treatment. They say, okay, you're going to go to this place. This is where you're going to live. And it's court ordered, just, yeah, like, yeah. just yeah. like punishment. We send people to jail. We have no trouble taking away their rights for breaking the law. So you make a, make a you know, you just enforce the existing laws, really. 
and uh, you give them a choice. You say, okay, you can go to jail for five years, or you can go and live in this nice little apartment building and have a room, and there'll be a nurse on duty, and you can have a prescription for your drug. Uh, what do you want to do? Yeah. Would that be like a wean-off prescription, ideally, or you can just do that and do your drug as long as you want, or does it sort yeah, I mean, of clean up itself when they're just sort of sitting around bored? Yeah, ideally, they just have time to sit around and think about it. You give them the time to think about it and come to their own to their own conclusion. Because you have to, if you want to quit a drug, you can't. Nobody can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. It has to come from you. You have to have that volition. And uh, if you take away the 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 the, uh, the whole lifestyle around getting the drug, and they're just sitting around with nothing to do, and they're just watching TV, and they've got their drug and blah blah, you know, they, then what are they going to do? Then they start thinking for themselves. Then maybe they'll change their mind, and then their services are available when they need them. So but this is a system that has been tried, and it does work. Every everywhere it's been tried in Portugal and England, Portugal, yeah. everywhere yeah. they've done it, it's worked. So. You know, I don't know what the problem is. We should be doing well, that. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So why? I mean, especially because you you live in BC too, and and it's it's yeah. sort of it's kind of on the leading edge of this problem solution. But a lot of money gets injected in there, and it doesn't seem like they really. It seems to be getting worse. There's more overdoses than than ever every month. So yeah, I why can't they? Why haven't they been able to fix it? I don't know why people can't change their mind about it because uh, you know I think it just comes down to the thing. Well, these people are you know these people are doing what they want to do and. And uh, they should suffer the consequences of their bad decisions and their bad choices. And so it's kind of, a, you know, we take a punitive. Same with prisons. You know, we put people in prison to punish them. And punishment is not a deterrent. It's never been a deterrent for anything, really. You have to, you know, rehabilitate people or change their minds or inspire them in different ways. And there's many ways to do that. But we just uh, don't seem to be motivated enough to do it. For one thing, it would be a lot cheaper, you know. There's yeah. a very good economic argument for this because the cost, the, the cost of giving them a, a prescription of these drugs, which are very, very cheap to produce and uh, just a room, you know, to live in is, uh, you know, much less of an expense than, you know, the police policing and the medical stuff that you need to you need to employ to, to keep them on the streets and for all the emergencies and all the costs associated with that and the cleanup costs. They just spent, you know, like a million dollars on cleaning up this whole area that was taken over by a tent camp. Well, this is a year later. They're all back. It's more than ever. So, you know, when something doesn't work, you need to change your mind about it. But um, I don't know why governments can't figure this out. It seems to me like it should be uh, could be an easy enough problem to solve. Yeah, Portugal Portugal's been doing it for quite a while now, a couple of decades, I think, right? Yeah, they don't have thousands of people living in the streets in tents shooting up crack. That doesn't happen. So why not? Yeah. Why can't we learn from that? I don't know. It beats me. It's just uh, you know, I guess we're too too dumb. <laughs> it seems too, like too so stupid to solve these problems. Is that the bad drug that you mentioned, like the good drug and the bad drug kind of thing? Do you delineate? Is there a delineation there for you, like cocaine, crack, heroin, bad, uh, MDMA, acid, DMT? Yeah, so I call it I call it smart drugs and dumb drugs. So, you know, the smart drugs are ones that improve and enhance your quality of life. They increase they increase your awareness and perception of the world and therefore increase the quality of your life if they're if they're used properly. Now, the dumb drugs 
are the ones that decrease your perception and awareness. And that's why people do those drugs, because they don't want to be more aware and more perceptive of their situation, because it really sucks. And that's a painful reality. They want to escape from that. So, you know, the dumb drugs are done for completely the opposite reason that the smart drugs are done. And then there's, you know, smart people doing smart drugs and dumb people doing dumb drugs. But if you're a smart person, you can do a little bit of dumb drugs and get away with it. If you're smart enough and if you're a dumb person, you could potentially do some smart drugs and get a little bit smarter and eventually be a smart person doing smart drugs. <laughs> but I mean, you c couldn't you make the argument that, you know, cocaine, for example, could be good for a while. It could, it could be beneficial for a little bit, but then it gets out of control and it becomes a dumb drug. Well, anything that gets out of control is, is a problem, right? But I do believe that any drug can be done responsibly. Some, some you have to be a lot more responsible than others. But uh, I do believe, I mean, I've tried crack. I've tried crystal meth. Um, you know, and there was, never any, there was never any question that I would become an addict or anything. Um, I do amphetamine sometimes. You know, sometimes I'll do dexedrine. You know, if I go out for a long evening, I'll do 10 milligrams of dexedrine before I go out because <clears throat> it perks me up sharpens me up turns me into an intellectual giant and, um, and i have a much better time i have a great time right but i don't do that every day uh you i don't think you can do anything every day but i just do it when i need to do it and there's there's never and it is it is an amphetamine i mean it is addictive but there's no there's no question in my mind that i could ever be addicted to anything because i'm not willing to let let that happen Right, because I have enough perception and awareness, probably from doing a lot of smart drugs, <laughs> that uh, prevents me from prevents me from that risk. Like it's not a risk for me. For some people, they're much more vulnerable, and they're much more high risk. And so those people should stay away. I mean, even psychedelics. You know, anybody with any sort of mental illness or psych, so you know, history of psychosis, they shouldn't do psychedelics at all. So you got to know you got to know what works for you, and that's the, really the key point: is it working for you, or is it not? Yeah, I come from addiction too. I haven't touched a thing in sixteen, almost sixteen years now. Right. But cocaine got away from me. So I mean, I tried all the psychedelics, but I, I did, you know, I wasn't really doing them with reverence or with sort of awareness. I don't. Right. Think. It was more of a party thing, and then and then the cocaine just got away from me to the point where. Like I just lost my choice of staying. I, I had, I was addicted and I, you know, mm -hmm. had to sort of ask for help and surrender and all that kind of stuff to, you know, and sort of practice abstinence to, cause like even me, I was, you know, I'd even think about doing psychedelics again, maybe mushrooms or something or, 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 or uh, MDMT or MDMA. But, um, you know, I feel like I'd just be like looking forward to that every single weekend or whatever the case may be. I, I, I feel like I've crossed that line where, I don't even know if it's safe to do anything. Yeah, well, that's for you to decide, right? And this is what Timothy Leary was talking about in the early 60s was how to operate your brain. You know, you have to be aware of, of, of what things, how things, what effects uh, drugs have. And, um, and you have to, you know, you have to have that objective perspective on what you're doing so that it's a positive experience and if it's a, is if it's improves and enhances the quality of your life it's fine if it doesn't if it decreases the quality of your life then you got to stop doing it yeah yeah do you use do you use something specific for writing 
No, I don't. Uh, I don't like to be un under the influence of anything for writing. I can, you know, my concentration is goes. I mean, I could write on amphetamines, but I don't want to because if I did that, then I'd do too many amphetamines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, when I write, and it takes me a year to write a book, and it's like you know, five hours a day, five days a week. So, if I associated that that kind of time and focus with a drug, I'd be uh, you know, living on the street in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> Are the tents coming back up out there? I mean, we're kind of in the season oh, yeah. where they all sort of head west, probably. No, they're coming. They're coming back. I think that's part of the problem with BC is that the weather is much milder than other places in Canada, and so a lot of the street people. I mean, like a couple of years ago, they were saying, "Okay, we're going to house every single street person," and they did a pretty good job. They got a lot of people off the streets, but then all these people from all over the country flooded in and set up tents on every sidewalk and every you know boulevard thinking that, oh, we're going to get a place to live. And, of course, some of them did, but now they're all the residue and all the excess. It's just back to square one. So you've got to deal with the underlying problems, and it's not a drug problem. It's a social problem, I think. So do you think that getting rid of the institutions, in the, when was that, the 70s or the 80s? I mean, your book is your book is like a prime example, right? You're, you're writing about that, and that's not available really to us anymore from when they got rid of it. And when was that, the 80s or the 70s, I think? Yeah, they closed, they closed down all the mental asylums and let, <laughs> let everybody out. <laughs> Bad idea, apparently. Didn't, didn't really work out, did it? Yeah, I mean, some people do need supervision. You know, they can't look after themselves. They can't make the right decisions. They need to be supervised. I mean, they don't need to be tied up in rooms and hit with a, you know, a water hose, but they do need a safe place to be and a place where they can get treatment and whatever drugs they need and then transition from that place back into society. I mean, that's, that's the only real option. That's the only real option that works. You can't just leave, leave mental patients on the street. They're not going to get better there. I think psych psychedelics play a part in that in sort of like a harm reduction way where people could sort of, get refocused on MDMA or LSD or something? Well, there are programs. I mean, one of the, one of the original, uh, original um, uh, studies, one of the very first studies done on LSD was in Saskatchewan. And it was uh, Hubert Humphreys and, uh, and uh, Oswald. These were two uh, psychologists that did uh, studies on LSD and alcoholism. They took the hardest core alcoholics they could find. They put them through this LSD program. Well, everybody that went through that, that program got massive results. And I saw a recent article where they'd interviewed these people like 50 years after the fact, and they'd never touched a drop since then. Wow. So they just completely changed their mind about it. And that's the thing about addiction is that your mind is stuck. It's stuck on these rails, and you cannot get off. So – it changes, you know, one of the best things to, that psychedelics do is they actually change your mind. They change the way you think. And this was incredibly successful. And then, of course, you know, LSD became illegal and that was it. It was all over. But there are there are some new uh, studies going on with alcoholism and, uh, and psilocybin. There's a program in Victoria where they're trying to get uh, opiate addicts off opiates using psilocybin. Oh, wow. So they're still getting, I mean, they're, you know, this like the, they, they, they take them off uh, opiates with uh, benzodiazepines too. So just using those stepping down over time. 
So, you know, some of these things work better for some people than others. But um, all the time you're, you know, you're living in a tent, you're, you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to try anything. So. Do you think for the, for those people, like for myself that crossed that line, do you think abstinence is a, is a, like something that they should desire? I mean, I feel like that's what's missing in a lot of the, a lot of the harm reduction models is like, there's really no, there's no goal or clear way to actually like stop using. Well, if you ever, if you're, you know, if you're particularly vulnerable with a certain drug and you find it very, very addictive and irresistible, you, you definitely need abstinence from that drug. You need to never do that drug again. But that doesn't mean you can never smoke a joint or never do a, you know, a little bit of mushrooms for a walk through the countryside because yeah. those things are not going to, not going to do the same as cocaine did. Yeah, that's I, yeah, that's fine. I I don't mind that. I agree with that. But I don't even think there's the goal of abstinence with like let's say you're you know you're addicted to to heroin or trank or something like they just don't think I think like they just want to keep sort of providing enough for them to keep on it. Uh, I don't know until they die. Basically, that seems like that's what's happening. No, I think the goal should be obviously to fade it out because uh, but you you know if you're a hardcore addict you can't just take it away. You can go into a coma and die yeah. if you're an yeah. opium addict, you know, or yeah. an opiate addict. It can be really, that's why they take you off slowly through, you know, through the medical rehab thing. They do it through, uh, you know, benzos and just take you down slowly and try and, you know, mitigate the, uh, the withdrawal symptoms. But once you're, um, you know, once you've taken it down, you're, yeah, the goal, of course, should be to get it out of your life and then never do it again. Yeah. Like they say with alcohol, too, if you're a hopeless alcoholic, you should never have a drink because one drink is never going to be enough. You you can't trust yourself to have a glass of wine with dinner, which is not going to do you any harm, right? But it's it's going to be it may trigger your addiction again and and put you back into trouble. So no, you abstinence you should always be the goal if this if a drug has been a real problem in your life because you don't want the problem. Yeah, Darren, do you have any questions or comments? What was your uh, what was your first psychedelic experience? Um, first one, well, I guess it was uh, pot, you know, hash. Going behind the pub when I was fifteen years old and smoking hash for the first time. So I described that that in the I described that experience in the book. But again, even before that, I started with my uh, grandfather and my father taking me to a beer garden and giving me a pint of beer when I was fourteen and saying, "Get that down, yeah, be good for you." <laughs> So that was my introduction to mind-altering substances, uh, quickly followed by uh, hashish. And then not long after that, LSD. I actually describe a very bad LSD trip. I've only had one negative, uh, one negative experience with drugs, and that was the first time I did LSD when I was 16 years old. They did a massive... Hmm? Sorry, do you think there's a reason for that? Do you think there was... Oh, yeah. Yeah? Can you take... Well, the reason was I didn't know what LSD was. I didn't know what it was going to do. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing they could barely even see. It was a purple microdot, which is like three or four hundred mics of really, really pure acid. So, yeah, I did this thing, and I thought it was just going to be, uh, you know, some giggles or something. <laughs> so it was, um, it was a very, very profound experience. I thought it was dead. I thought it was a lizard. I thought, you know, it was. It was. It was uh, it, I thought it was insane. And it went on and on and on and on at 12 hours. Finally, I came down and thought, man, I, I'm never going to do another drug again. And I didn't really do anything for probably a year or two after that. 
And then I learned more about it. You know, I read uh, Leary and Ramdas and, you know, the, the Wasson and all the psychedelic literature. And then I realized, okay, I, so that's what's going on. And I was much better prepared the next time. But, you know, it was, and I put it in the book because it was the only negative experience I've ever had. But it was also just to, you know, illustrate the fact that if you do everything wrong, <laughs> set setting you know your mind space to get the, the pure drugs and all these guidelines that leary was on about so early on set and setting was his big thing you know your mindset's got to be right and your environment's got to be right where every single you know guideline was uh, the opposite for my first lsd trip and that's why it was a bad trip but it's actually uh, you know not that common to have that type of bad trip because usually i mean these days there's so much information everybody everybody knows about these things right and it's not hard to get the you can just google it right so back then nobody knew anything what about different cultures like in the uk like you're saying you grew up and you had a beer when you were 14 your parents gave it to you yeah um, it seems like europe is much more sort of free about that you can still go to the park and drink wine in the public like there's a whole you know, it seems like kids would be having wine in Europe too. And yeah, then yeah. you come to America and it's like 21. You're not supposed to drink till you're 21. It seems very strict in that regard. It's like, do you think there's a an opposite sort of a, a reverse psychology reaction that's happening there? I don't know. Maybe it came from, uh, you know, the, the North America's puritanical background. Because it does, you know, famously come from the Puritans and, you know, the religious yeah. people that that came over and started colonism and whatnot. So I think, I think part of it is that. And um, another part, it's just hard to change laws, but they are much more lax about it. I mean, it, it, but even in Mexico, I've seen women put white red wine in the baby's bottle, you know, like it just a little bit in the bottle and shake it up, you know, just to chill out the baby. <laughs> so that happens, but yeah, it's quite common for kids to, kids to drink beer when i grew up or i was 14 when i was 14 years old i was going to the pub every friday night every saturday night and every sunday lunchtime and we would drink anywhere between 10 and 14 pints of beer yeah the pub That's opened at, opened at six and closed at 10 so you had four hours <laughs> so you drink a pint every every 15 minutes you know, it was crazy but and all my school friends were there with me that we were all 14 there were teachers in the pub, you know, teachers that knew us from class <laughs> and they never, you know, nobody cared. Yeah. It's such a different culture with all the pubs there. I mean, I was in Dundalk, Ireland for a few months and there was so many little pubs. I mean, that's just what people, people hung out in the pubs. They didn't go to each other's houses. They just went to the pubs to, it was, a, it's a totally different culture than, than here. Right. Where there's so far to go. You just stay in your home and you sort of visit more in your home than, than outside. Yeah, you know, it's true. It was a community hub. Like everybody went, everybody went to the pub, usually and Sunday lunchtimes, and it, you know, but also Friday and Saturday nights was a big one. And then during the week as well, it's, it's like it's a pub culture, you know, but it's a social, it's a social thing. You're not going there to get drunk. You're going there because everybody you know is there. Exactly. <laughs> and your family's there, your grandmother's there, your kids are there, you know. <laughs> Must be why you, you guys develop that sense of humor. It's a <laughs> yeah, all <laughs> <Bought> half drunk. <laughs> no, it is a big drinking culture though, and you know it has been a, become a problem over the years. I think people, you know, also it seems to be a. T I mean, my pet, you know, my father drank, you know, the same amount as I did, uh, for 
you know, 50, 50, 60 years. And um, didn't seem any worse the wear for it. Because his attitude was that you know this was this was just normal. He didn't he didn't uh, he didn't think it was a, a bad. Nobody thought it was a bad thing. Everybody thought it was great. I mean, in the fifties, they didn't even think smoking was bad for you. So maybe maybe you're protected by your belief system to some degree. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. I mean, if I mean they say it's progressive, that's kind of what happened with me. It was progressive. But if it doesn't progress, then it can probably be managed pretty good. Yeah, and for some people more than others, right? I mean, some people are probably hypersensitive to these things, and yeah, and some people are just completely immune to them. Is alcoholism less of a problem over there, and like the binge drinking and stuff like that that we see over here? Um, I'm not sure. I would suspect it's kind of similar. What binge about drink- why do you think they haven't like why how is cannabis and all that still illegal over there? Do you see that changing anytime soon? Or that kind of it just seemed weird to me that you couldn't get weed anywhere over there. Even yeah. is it medically okay? Even no, there's no medical marijuana. There's no compassion clubs. There's no you know there's not even any movement really towards that. So no, I think there are long ways off. Um, there are long ways off legalizing marijuana. They basically swing backwards and forwards between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, where the Conservative Party, you know, thinks is probably thinks is immoral, and the Labour Party, you know, it's just going to get in the way of your work day. So <laughs> neither one are kind of you know open to the idea. Do you think it's coming to America full bore, like the whole like a national at a national level? Yeah, it will eventually. If, yeah, because it's gone. It's taken exactly the same route as here. In fact, the model here was based on a movement called. Uh, uh, sensible Colorado and they started a movement there and they said okay we're just going to legalize it instead of trying to get the federal laws changed we're going to legalize it on a local level so the municipalities started to just not enforce the laws and that's how it started and that's how the medical marijuana thing started and Canada took up that same model and took it all the way to national legalization but I think it's inevitable because most of the states now have either medical marijuana or recreational marijuana on a state level. And there are still and they've, they've even started changing federal laws. Now, there's a federal banking law that you couldn't have a bank account for marijuana business, you know, because it was federally illegal. And now they've changed that. So now you can have a, a you know, because the banking system is federally you know, governed. So now you can. So there, you know, there's chinks in the armor and it's changing slowly. And eventually they will have legal uh, recreational in, on a national level, I think. I, I want to get into your new book, but I keep wanting to stay on the, on the topic of drugs and stuff. Did you, what you mean you The End of that? Everything? Yeah, that, that book. <laughs> By Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Yeah. What do you An think? Ironic about, black comedy. Before we get into that, what do you think uh, about the the exodus to South America for ayahuasca and, and all that kind of, all the shamanic type stuff. Uh, I think the shamanic type stuff is mostly just nonsense. <laughs> I think I'm getting to realize that Fritz in your book is you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably true. I think, I think, you know, if you're a writer, I think all the characters that you write about are you, <laughs> you know, because where else does it come from? Yeah, Fritz in the book, in uh, The End of Everything, by Jimmy Fritz, an ironic black comedy available at bookstores everywhere, is a, um, 
is like me on steroids with no brakes. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I mean, I just, what, what made you write a, a novel like that after the two other books you did? Well, because I like to rant about things and, um, I, uh, you know, have gatherings at my house every Friday where I'm famous for uh, ranting about this, that, and the other thing. So I wanted to get some very, very concise, precise rants down. And I thought, how can I frame that in a book? And I thought, I know, I'll have a character in a mental asylum plotting his own suicide while ranting about the world. <laughs> so that was the idea. And that's what I did. Yeah, it was very well well done. I mean, it was really funny. I was laughing to myself a couple times out loud, and, and uh, I thought of Darren a couple times because your character was, uh, you know, ranting about the democracy and the eighty uh, percent of the people being idiots and stuff. And they eighty seven percent more on theory. <laughs> Could you expand on that? Well, the, the, the theory is that 87% of all human beings are basically morons and cannot be trusted to make a decision in a democracy about anything, you know, on account of knowing nothing about economics or foreign policy or social order or anything. <laughs> so, you know, there's the problem. Therein lies the problem with democracy is you've got 87% of the population who are morons uh, voting, uh, voting governments in. So well, who do they vote in? Morons. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Do you, well, I mean, that's almost an argument for the feudal system. I mean, people trying to think it was, uh, maybe we tried democracy before we went back to Kings and shit for a reason. It's because it's like, I don't know. I, you know, it depends on your King, I guess, but you, you know, a King is probably more apt to defend his borders maybe, or to make sure his, hopefully his, uh, subjects are fed and happy so they don't come and burn his castle down and and all those sorts of things but um at least you have a guy to go after when the shit's going down yeah yeah well that's the benevolent dictator theory where you know the, the maybe the most effective form of going is, is a benevolent dictator so you know they have the best interest at hearts but they also have total power to do to stuff i think i think that you know we can i think we can fine-tune democracy to work um you know i think it is the best of the worst but um yeah i think there should be some maybe some basic uh testing program like licensing to drive a car you know we don't let anybody just get into a car and, and hit the roads we license them they have to prove they can drive a car so maybe you have to you know do a test and just prove that you know the basics of economics and foreign policy and the things that you're going to vote this person to do because you should have some understanding about what they're going to do and if you don't maybe you shouldn't be voting yeah it's just keeping that training nonpartisan. <laughs> i don't know i can't picture how that mandatory training would be nonpartisan. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, not 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 uh, advocating certain policies, but just learning how the system works and what the consequences are of different policies. Yeah, yeah. Because people yeah, have no idea. I yeah. mean, in in England, they voted for Brexit. You know, they voted to leave the EU. It was just an awful, terrible decision, and it was made because people had no idea what the consequences were, no clue at all. They just voted, you know, emotionally because they didn't like foreigners. Or so, because they uh, don't like unelected leaders in the EU running things? No, they wanted to. They didn't want to be ruled by Brussels. They didn't want to be ruled by foreigners. 
and they don't want foreigners making rules in England. So, you know, it was basically a xenophobia. But they didn't know, they didn't understand about how the EU worked and what the benefits are of that economic system. And that it gives you, you know, much greater. They didn't realize they were going to lose their passport, their EU passports. They didn't realize they were going to not be able to work in any European countries anymore. And all these things, they had no idea what they were voting for. You still feel like they made the wrong decision? Oh, I know they made the wrong decision. After this many years of seeing what's happening in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think they'd be better off in the EU. Yeah. But they may even they may even join again. It's quite possible if they have a Labour government, they'll join again. But whether the EU will have them back now, I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, exactly. They might say, hey, you you want it out, you're out. See you yeah. later. Yeah. So Fritz was pretty. Fritz was pretty skeptical, and he was pretty. It was a bit surprising to me because I thought, you know, if this is you and you've been through these psychedelic psychedelic journeys and the traveling, like he was pretty sort of atheistic and skeptical. Yes, absolutely. I am also very skeptical and very atheistic. <laughs> Surprisingly enough. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. mean, is that does it seem doesn't it does it seem like a rare thing if you've, you know, been through all the psychedelics and that whole culture? I don't think you have to uh I don't think you have to believe in the supernatural to uh to believe in the the psychological, you know, power of psychedelics. I think psychedelics are going to prove to be a, a fantastic tool for in terms of uh, psychopathology in terms of you know the psycho psychedelic uh, psychotherapy revolution which is happening right now because yeah. they do have this ability to completely change your mind to make you thinking different ways you know to make you so you know give you the ability to solve problems in uniquely creative ways uh they can influence you to be more more creative and more focused and you know all these things are massively uh popular but you're not going to different dimensions and talking to aliens well no but that i would but i was going to say that that's what you hear about i mean you hear about people doing dmt and they they meet like yeah, yeah, yeah. god or some <laughs> one one love or one thing and they're just like you know yeah, well, you hear crazy. about people seeing the virgin mary you know appear in their living room too and they get abducted by aliens you know you hear all kinds of this back to the 87 percent moron theory <laughs> <laughs> just because people say, think things it doesn't mean it's true there's certainly no evidence to support any of that there's no evidence at all for any type of a supernatural realm at all there oh, never okay. has been only the oh, imagination okay. of uh 87% of the population <laughs> oh there's lots of evidence for past lives for no know, there is not a, not a jot not a jot yeah, sure there is well only what people say only the imagination of human beings that's not evidence for anything. In fact, any scientific it's experiment screws, screens out the influence of human beings and their beliefs and their opinions. It's not proof, but it's evidence. What well, evidence of what? Well, it's 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 anecdotal evidence. I, I would say that you're probably right that there, there's no proof. But yeah, the lowest form of the lowest form of evidence is anecdotal. Yeah, yeah. So you know you can almost dismiss it. It's sometimes an indication to look further you know like if everybody says something has happened and then you look at it yeah yeah exactly. psychic phenomenon has been studied for a hundred years you know for, uh, paranormal activity has been studied for a hundred years uh randy randy the, the amazing oh, randy he had a million dollar million dollar prize anybody that can prove any oh, he was a fraud 
Randy uh, was a fraud. You can't bring up Randy. He was a fraud. Why was he a fraud? In the end. Well, didn't he get busted for a bunch of unethical nope. uh, unethical stuff in the end anyways? No. And he was he was sort of cheating in that whole prize thing. I mean, look, the, no, the he wasn't cheating. He wasn't cheating at all. How is he cheating? He was catching oh. the cheaters. Mm. I don't he put up him. a million dollar prize and he said, anybody that can prove paranormal activity or any type of psychic ability, then they could get a million dollars. The million dollars was there and they worked out and they worked it out together, the protocol. They both had to agree on the protocol and the test. If somebody said that they could, you know, they could do te telekinesis or whatever, then they would set up an experiment and they'd say, okay, let's see you do it. I heard he just kept moving the goalposts or something. No, he never moved a yeah. goalpost. He took this, he did this in the late 70s. It was exactly the same goalposts until he died. I thought he was doing it in the nine in the 90s. And even in all the, the way 2000s. all the way through the 80s and 90s. Uh, he started on a radio show. And somebody called in and he said, well, if you can, if you can <laughs> prove a psychic ability, I'll give you $100,000. Well, that 100000 over the next 25 years became a million. And um, it stopped when he died. They shut it down because you can go to the website now, randy randy.org, and you can see thousands of reports of all these tests that were done with tarot readers and psychics and aura readers and blah, blah, blah. Every one of them failed the test 100% of the time. What yeah, is that I, don't know. I don't I don't I don't I don't buy believe his 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 testing. I mean I've I've also read a lot of studies and on all kinds of phenomena that they've also proven the opposite. So no, they're not gonna let anything pass. I mean, I think his background is even suspect. But his background is as an entertainer. He was a it was a, a yeah. magician. Yeah, there you go. Well, what's wrong with that? He was an entertainer. He never claimed to be. He claimed to be a, a you know, a, a, a magician, like with magic tricks. He didn't claim yeah, yeah. that they were supernatural yeah, abilities. Yeah, no, I know. That's that's what I'm. And he would doing. reproduce the spoon bending and the psychic readings, and he could reproduce any of those effects. Yeah, with his dry reading and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I just think that that whole movement there in the early two thousands. They all they would do is ridicule people that had legitimate experiences in their own mind, at least, and they would put he them would, in buckets to ignore them. And Randy would, was a true uh, gentleman, and he was very polite to everybody. And they designed <laughs> that they designed the test together. They both agreed that it would prove or disprove their ability in a hundred percent of the cases in thousands and thousands of events. All righty, not one person passed the test. Okay, well, just where does the placebo effect fit into that? Huh? What about, where does the placebo effect fit into that? Well, there's no placebo effect. If you say that you can, uh, if you say that you can astral travel, and you go to well, no, I don't mean the placebo effect for astral travel, but doesn't the placebo effect well, a psychic, a psychic, uh, a psychic? I mean, I don't know if it alludes to a psychic ability, but it just it does seem to allude that we have uh, powers outside of what science prescribes to us. No, so placebo effect is very, very well understood by science. It's been very, very well understood. It's you know, it's it's a real thing. It's a, it's a psychological effect. Um, it happens. It's not very you know. It happens in a small amount of people. It's usually ten to thirteen percent will get an effect from something. But it's it's an impression that they get. You're not going to shrink a tumor with a with a placebo effect. You're not going to cure diabetes one with with a placebo effect. You're not going to have any direct physical 
response. The placebo effect is a psychological effect that makes you feel better. So the people say, oh, yeah, I feel a little bit better now. That's the, because it's a placebo effect. Even if you give them milk powder, they say, yeah, my headache went away. Well, their headache went away because it was going away. But, you know. But they've had to engineer in even a double blind where the evidence isn't accepted unless even the doctor doesn't know. Yeah, double blind tests will, will also pursue, well, one of the groups is placebo. So the placebo doesn't go into the healing at all. It's just really like a, a sort of a. It doesn't have any physiological effect. Any physi Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about that. I thought that was the whole point of the placebo is that it, that something is happening in because of your the power of your belief that something is working. And well, something does to... something does happen, but it's because you change your mind. And here we go right. with psychedelics again, because they can do the same thing. Yeah. Like if you have pain, there's you know, there's pain responses, like back pain is a common one. You know, you get this pain signal that's going and going and going long after the injury is healed. That's a, that, even, that's a right? like a, almost a glitch in the system where it yeah. keeps giving you this pain. Well, a placebo effect could get rid of that. Yeah. So could counseling, so could hypnosis, so could psychedelics, anything that can change your mind because right. that pain is going, it's, it's a psychological effect. So you can decrease pain with a placebo effect because, I mean, you can do that just with your mind without any placebo. Right? Yeah. You can just sit there and you can will it away. You can bring up your blood pressure a little bit up and down and stuff like this. So you do have a little bit of power there. But like I say, you're not gonna you're not gonna cure your pancreatic cancer with a placebo. Right. Well, I mean, we have seen guys change their body temperature, do some pretty crazy stuff. Uh before we run out of time, Jimmy, I gotta ask, you're not secretly plotting your suicide, are you? Uh yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. I've already planned it. I'm going to have this big party. I've got this beautiful gazebo in my backyard, which is lit up with psychedelic lighting. <laughs> I'm going to have a party in that gazebo, and uh, then I'm going to get the doctor come over in the morning and uh, shoot me up, and I'm going to make a final video announcement and drive traffic to my website, which is www.jimmyfritz.ca. Everything's there. I've got music. I've got books. I've got five albums. I've got music videos. I've got films, uh, whatever jimmyfritz.ca and then i'm gonna peg out on on youtube and um i told my friend about this who's 94 years old and he said well that sounds like a fantastic idea i think i'm gonna do that and i said <laughs> okay well if you want to do it here you can do it so he did it two weeks ago in my gazebo wow yeah so is he a, is he part of the maid stats then or yes yeah he got made the doctor came and we had a big party with all his family and friends he's, he's and he's a made man Oh yeah, he was a made man. He was that's very happy to, to go. That's a good way to go. So, how when are you planning on this? Oh, not for a while. Not until yeah. I need to. Not until yeah, life becomes unbearable. Yeah, I was going to say, seem pretty happy. Right now, know. life is pretty sweet. So, nowhere <laughs> in the near future. But when the time comes, I'm not going to be. You know, I'm not going to deteriorate to the grave. I'm not going to go into a home. I'm not going to be wheeled around in a chair or spoon fed or any of that. So. Long before any of that happens, I right. will peg out gracefully, yeah, and on my own terms. Right on. Do you? Uh, are and you on YouTube? And mm -hmm. on they, my, might, yeah. they might block that, I and mean, YouTube might not allow that. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I so guess it doesn't matter if you get leak it onto the dark net yeah. as soon as possible. Yeah, exactly. It'll be part of faces of death. You know, the new faces of death. Yeah, yeah. So, 
so do you uh do you do are you doing any music in the future any more books in your in your writing I'm, you doing, uh, I'm working on the like, new album right now you're not gonna do like fritz in the afterlife like realizing that there actually there is an afterlife and like <laughs> 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 the metaphysical reality yeah the sequel on the other side right uh no i don't i don't um actually probably won't write any more books uh, it's virtually impossible to sell a book for a start, you know, and it's a big, it's a big uh, commitment of time and energy. Yeah. And uh, I've really enjoyed writing the books I've written and uh, I don't think I'll write any more because, um, you know, like I say, there's no real, um, there's no real reason to. Yeah. Yeah. But music. Uh, music. Definitely. I mean, I'll never stop playing music. I'm working on a new album now, which is one song, which is 40 minutes long. Nice. And it goes through many, many changes, and I got string sections in it, and transitions, and French horns, and piano, and I'm playing all the instruments. Right on. Is that, that your favorite? Huh? Is that your favorite? Is that your favorite music? Which music? Is the music your favorite sort of art? Uh, it is at the moment. You know, whatever I'm doing is my favorite. I think. You know, if I'm making films, and that's you know, it's all consuming, right? You get, uh, I think you have to, you know, for any creative endeavor, you have to get completely immersed in it, right? So whatever I'm, whatever I'm involved in is my favorite thing. Right now it's music again. So I do have five albums on my uh, website at jimmyfritz.ca. So you, well, Jimmy, you, can this, them, you can play them right from there. It's, it's pretty cool. You can download them for free from there. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, this has been great. Uh, All right. Hours flown by. Where can people find your stuff? Uh, JimmyFritz.ca. <laughs> That's JimmyFritz.ca. <laughs> is no, that with an I or a Y? Look, it's really good. I mean, a Y. I, I sorry, <laughs> Jimmy. An I and one I. -I, -I. -M -I. You can see it on the on the screen there. I pictured the book as like a little movie. I mean, it really easy to visualize the characters, and uh, it was very funny. So I was kind of hoping it would get picked up as a limited series or something. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. Some wacky comedian actor as Fritz, and, uh, and then yeah. you could have new characters every week coming in and out of the mental asylum, and it'd be hilarious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> while, he's, while he's trying to collect all his drugs for his suicide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you uh, do you have any social media, anything like that, people can follow you on? Just uh, just my website is the best thing, jimmyfritz.ca. That's where everything, all my stuff is there, and uh, you can contact me through there. Right on. Thanks. I buddy. don't have a Twitter account or an Instagram or a TikTok or any of that because uh, I hate that shit. <laughs> yeah, stay away from that, or you might be planning your maid a little quicker than you thought. Okay, that's that's where the eighty-seven percent live. <laughs> seems like it. It does seem like yeah. it. All right, buddy. Well, thanks. It's been great. Here's okay, cheers. Thanks a lot. Don't forget to send me the link. Yeah, okay. and uh, here's hoping your death party is a long ways off. Peace out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that was our chat with Jimmy Fritz. What'd you think? Oh yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was I, I kind of thought I thought that might have been based on him, uh, him, his real character. And I was like, oh, he sounds really skeptical. You know what? It's been a long time since I've actually heard those arguments. Um, that actually, it's been so long that I <laughs> thought they were no longer valid. So <laughs> I wish you I would have world over there, more. Hey, buddy. <laughs> what? You live in your own world over there, eh? Yeah, podcast. You don't have to worry about reality. <laughs> oh no, that that's not reality. So, no, I don't say I agree with it either. But uh, yeah, he makes some good points. Yeah. Big thanks to Jimmy for coming on the show. Big thanks to you guys for listening. 
Hey, even bigger thanks if you choose to support our work over at GoAmerica.ca slash support. If you're getting some value from the show, from the 600 and what is it, 36? It's a past that now. Uh, 600 and something. It's 600 and a lot. So head over to GoAmerica.ca slash support. Sign up today. So make a monthly or one-time donation or whatever you can do. Helps us stay in business over here. Keep the show going. Keep the uh, power flowing, the internet on. GrimericaOutlaw.ca if you want to get into our other stuff. A little more political, a little darker, a little more controversial. Contact at thecabin.com for the trips. Adultbrain.ca, we got the audiobook podcast and the audiobooks. Uh, Did I forget anything? Well, just maybe this year, this month's free audiobooks on the podcast. What are they? Oh, yeah, we're doing on a... Malleus Maleficarum, that's the Hammer of Witches from like the 1500s, the Catholic Church. And uh, the vampire stories, 25, I think it's 25, right? 25 old vampire tales, like from mm-hmm. twenty from the 17, 1800s. And the other one was... Uh, Christianity. Yeah, Rudolf Steiner. Christianity is a mystical fact. So those three are free in our podcast. And Jimmy Fritz would not like that book. No, he wouldn't like most of them, I don't think. He wouldn't like most of our books. Maybe you like them. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. We love you. And we'll see you next week. Season's greetings from the Grimerica Show podcast. Gather around the fireplace. Help yourself to some hot cocoa with the little marshmallows in it. Maybe have a candy cane or two. And maybe some cookies. It's so warm and jolly. Cry Merry Christmas. Podcasting from the igloo. Darren plays jingle bells on the didgeridoo. And over there, that's Graham crying tears of joy. As he listens in on the little drummer boy, I see you've acquainted yourself with D-Ron. Yeah, it's true, he puffs Christmas trees on medicinal. Wait a second, is that? Yeah, I think that's Sasquatch beneath the mistletoe. Get over here, Graham. Thank you for saving me and giving me gifts. And it looks like Napoleon Doom is decorating the room. With tinsels, ribbon, popcorn, on strings, and poinsettias, they are in bloom. And you might ask, who's that in the green and red Lucian Libre mask? Why, of course, that's RPJ, Feliz Navidad. It's so warm and jolly. Cry Merry Christmas. Podcasting from the igloo. Darren plays jingle bells on the didgeridoo. And over there, that's Graham crying tears of joy. As he listens in on the little drummer boy. You'll get a warm and fuzzy feeling if you donate to the Grind America show. So get in the spirit, reach down in your pocket and make it rain. I mean, uh, let it snow, make it snow, let it snow, let it snow, make it snow. Donate to the show. Donate to the show. Donate to the show. It's so warm and jolly. Cry 
Christmas Podcasting from the igloo Darren plays jingle bells on the didgeridoo And over there that's Graham crying tears of joy As he listens in on the little drummer boy Polo